with me and let's open them up to the book of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We were away from Daniel last week but we come back today to Daniel chapter 1. And as you are turning there, um, let me ask you to consider for a moment what it would have been like to be a young Hebrew man suddenly taken from your home taken from your family, taken from everything you've ever known and brought to the city of Babylon in 605 BC. How can we even imagine what that was like? One writer says, the exiles from Judah found themselves in a city that made Zion look like a village. While a few thousand lived in Jerusalem, Babylon boasted a quarter of a million in a metropolis so majestic and hedonistic that the goddess of love and war, Ishtar, was said to tiptoe through the streets, kissing her favorites in the inns and the alleyways. Nebuchadnezzar stamped Babylon with his own aesthetic flair grandiose gigantism tinted in his favorite color divine sky blue reflected in the canals of the mighty Euphrates there was the four towers of the Ishtar gate they were faced with blue glazed brocks illustrated with bulls and dragons in a yellow and ochre leading into the city's triumphal boulevard the processional way Nebuchadnezzar's palace, in his words, an edifice to be admired, a gleaming sanctuary, my royal abode, was decorated with towering lions. Hanging gardens embellished Nebuchadnezzar's summer palace. Honoring Babylon's patron god, Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar raised a ziggurat, an immense seven-story stepped tower with a flat top. It was his foundation platform of heaven and earth. So a little bit about the city of Babylon as Daniel and his friends would have experienced it coming into the city now as um, forced servants of the king. One tower of Babel had been destroyed by God while it was being constructed back in Genesis 11. There was now a new tower of Babel, this ziggurat that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And this ziggurat stood as a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's power and his glory. Uh, Suffice it to say, Daniel and his friends found themselves not only in a new city, they found themselves in a whole different world from what they had known back home in Jerusalem. Now, one reason that this book of Daniel is so helpful and so timely for us is that it addresses this question. How do we serve God in a land where paganism and immorality reign and where God's people are the minority? Mount Hermon, are we aware that more and more this is where we are right now in our own state This is where we are right now in our own nation. Young people in this room, do you understand that unless God does something surprising, your allegiance to Christ means you are going to be a minority among citizens of the United States? Most people will not agree with your beliefs. 
Most people will not agree with your principles and your convictions. And not only will they disagree with you, but some will vehemently disagree with you. Already in the universities, the intellectual elites of our culture are arguing that raising children with belief in the Bible is tantamount to child abuse. Already Christians are being sued and brought to court when they refuse to entangle their businesses in celebrations of immorality. Already we see heavier regulations and restrictions being placed on Christian institutions so that they will find it more difficult to accomplish their mission. I don't know what the future holds, but I ask each and every one of you whether or not you are willing to be ostracized and made an outcast for the name of Jesus Christ. Don't wait till the pressure is on to decide. If you wait till the pressure is on, it will be too late. We must resolve now whether or not we will stand. So many of the New Testament epistles were written to Christians who were already suffering and they saw a more severe kind of suffering coming on the horizon. So for example, when you read the epistles of Peter or the letters to the churches in Revelation, it seems clear that those writers expected a more intense kind of persecution that was about to fall upon those Christians. And I think there is more and more reason to believe that we find ourselves in a similar place. And so there are questions that we need to be asking. How do we trust God in the midst of great trials when we find our lives disrupted by events we never expected? If our lives are not turning out the way we thought they had might, How do we fight the temptation to give in to discouragement or depression? In the midst of confusion, in the midst of heartbreak and suffering, how do we stay faithful and joyful and content? And most of all, how can we honor God who has shown us mercy while we are living in such a world? This book of Daniel has answers for us. In 1561, 1561, John Calvin's lectures on the book of Daniel were published. And at the beginning of his commentary on Daniel, Calvin dedicated that work to, quote, all the pious worshipers of God who desire the kingdom of Christ to be rightly constituted in France. You see, France was Calvin's homeland. But he had not been there in 26 years because of his ministry in Geneva and elsewhere. And France was a place where the people of God were being oppressed and being persecuted. Those who had come to embrace the gospel in France, those who had left the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, those people were called Huguenots. And by the time that Calvin's commentary on Daniel was published, the Huguenots, the gospel-believing Frenchmen, numbered around two million people. And eventually, they would be completely driven out of the country. 
Some estimates say that at least three-fourths of them, certainly over a million of them, were slaughtered. In fact, 11 years after Calvin's commentary on Daniel was published, we had what was called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, in which King Charles IX of France, under the influence of his mother Catherine, ordered for certain Huguenot leaders to be killed. But some of the Catholics in Paris got out of control, and in their lust for Protestant blood on that one day alone, as many as 70,000 French believers in the gospel were killed. That's more than the entire population of Rocky Mount. All gospel believers, and all slaughtered for their faith in one day on the streets in Paris. Besides the more than a million who were eventually killed, another half a million were forced to flee the country, especially in the mid to late 1600s. And this is where North Carolina comes in, right? A good number of the Huguenots under that persecution fled to the state of North Carolina. It wasn't a state then, it was a colony, but they fled to the colony of North Carolina for safety. So seeing that that's what was going on in France, the severe persecution of the people of God, listen to what Calvin wrote at the beginning of his commentary on Daniel that he dedicated to the suffering Christians in France. And this is what he said. He said, In publishing the lectures, which contain my interpretation of the prophecies of Daniel, I have the very best occasion of showing you, beloved brethren, in this mirror, how God proves the faith of his people in these days by various trials. And how with wonderful wisdom he has taken care to strengthen their minds by ancient examples that they should never be weakened by the concussions of the severest storms and tempests, or at least if they should totter at all, that they should never finally fall away. Listen to this. For although the servants of God are required to run in a course impeded with many obstacles, yet whoever diligently reads this book of Daniel will find in it whatever is needed by a voluntary and active runner to guide him from the starting post to the goal. While good and strenuous wrestlers will experientially acknowledge that they have been sufficiently prepared for the contest. In other words, Calvin says that the book of Daniel in particular helps us to run our race well, even in the midst of many obstacles. The book of Daniel prepares us and equips us to wrestle against the temptations that are certain to come our way in a land of paganism and immorality. He presents the book of Daniel to us as an excellent training manual to help us learn to stand firm the way Daniel and his friends did in our days of darkness. So I've spent two sermons already and several minutes this morning trying to impress upon you uh, the importance of this book and to give you some background material and to introduce this book. We've already looked at the opening two verses, talked about the historical context, looked at the sins of Judah that brought the book of Daniel to be. Now this morning we dive into the story looking at this group of exiles that included Daniel and his friends. And as we study verses 3 through 7, Daniel 1, 3 through 7, 
we can separate these verses into three headings. Here they are. Verses three and four, the taking of the exiles. Verses four and five, the provision for the exiles. And verses six through seven, the renaming of the exiles. And we're going to look at the first heading this morning and the following two next Sunday. So this morning, here's our heading, the taking of the exiles. And even though we're looking at verses three and four, let's start reading in verse one. Verse one. This is the very word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what do verses 3 and 4 tell us? Well, they tell us who gave the order for these exiles to be taken, King Nebuchadnezzar. They tell us who carried out the order, Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz is one of Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men, a man devoted to serving the Babylonian king. And we also learn here who was taken. It was members of the royal family in Judah, as well as those of the nobility. In particular, it was to be the youths of these families who had been well-raised and were in good health with good education. In other words, the exiles that were taken into Babylon from Jerusalem were the privileged young men of Judah. Those who had been given opportunities that others did not have. These were the elite. These were the upper class of Jerusalem society. And most scholars think that Daniel and his friends were likely in their teens when they were taken, perhaps as young as 14 or 15 years old. And finally, we see where they were taken. They were taken to be, giving, to be given a Babylonian education and to be made servants of the pagan king. That's why they were taken, sorry. Why were they taken? To be given a Babylonian education and to be made servants of the pagan king. So what can we say about the taking of these young men? Well, I think we can make at least six statements. And so that's the rest of our time this morning. Six statements about the taking of these young men. Number one, the taking of these young men was the fulfillment of prophecy. The taking of these young men was the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, a century before this happened, Isaiah had spoken the word of God to the king of Judah at that time, a man named Hezekiah. You might remember Hezekiah had welcomed ambassadors from Babylon. He had shown them all the treasures and the valuables of Judah. At that time, Babylon was still a little kingdom. Hezekiah wasn't worried about Babylon. They were, they were little folks over here. He, he had no idea what was to come in the century ahead. But Isaiah came to Hezekiah with a message from God saying that he had made a fatal blunder 
in showing the Babylonians the treasures of Judah. And among the truths that Isaiah delivered from God to King Hezekiah was this one in Isaiah 39, 7. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so what we have here in Daniel 1 is the fulfillment of that word. The the nobility of Jerusalem would certainly have included the descendants of Hezekiah. Some of these exiles were indeed of the royal family. And we see here again that our God is a God who keeps his word whether it's a word of promise, a word of blessing, or whether it's a word of curse, when God speaks, you can take it to the bank. It will come true. By the way, we also see in those verses from Isaiah what is hinted at in Daniel 1, which is that it is very likely that Daniel and his three friends were made eunuchs. It is hinted at in Daniel 1 in that Ashpenaz is called the chief eunuch, but his title could be just as easily translated chief of the eunuchs. Kings would often make the men around them eunuchs so that they would live lives of devoted service to the king with nothing to distract them. And so as we read this account, don't miss the great suffering that was included here for Daniel and his friends. Not only were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego torn from their families, not only were they torn from their own people, not only were they enslaved to a foreign king, but now they are made eunuchs. And their ability to be husbands and fathers with children of their own appears to have been taken away from them. And so this book starts out with a lot of tragedy for these teenage boys. But then second, the taking of these young men was the capturing of trophies. It was the capturing of trophies. It can be difficult for us here in the United States to feel the weight of this because our notable families in our country don't have the same influence and popularity as those in non-democratic cultures. But just imagine if the Kennedys and the Rockefellers or the Clintons or the Bushes had their young ones, their children, kidnapped by a foreign power and made servants to a foreign king. Do you see how devastating that would be for our society? And on the other hand, do you see what a statement of power and authority it would be for that foreign leader to parade those Bush children or those Clinton children through the streets of their capital city The crowds roaring in excitement at the victory of their king. Assuming King Nebuchadnezzar followed the common pattern of the ancient world, it is very likely that Daniel and his friends were paraded just like this down the processional way. There was this major thoroughfare right through the city of Babylon. And you can imagine the humiliation and the degradation of being marched right through the city like cattle while these pagan peoples jeered and cheered at you being enslaved and captured by their king. These exiled boys were trophies, declaring to the Babylonians that their king was a true conqueror, a victor, a champion of war. And of course, over the centuries, many of God's people 
have been treated this way by worldly powers. And so at the very least, this should be a reminder to us of the various kinds of persecution and suffering that have been directed against our brothers and sisters in Christ in the past and the kinds of suffering that many of our brothers and sisters face still today. Third, we're flying through. Third statement. The taking of these young men was the plundering of Judah's elite. The plundering of Judah's elite. Here were the future leaders of Judah taken away from her. Think about where this left the people of Judah who were left behind in Jerusalem. In many ways, their very best, their their best trained, their most educated, the most cared for youths of their land were now gone. And as these young men were led away from Jerusalem, Judah's hope for the future seemed to be living, leaving with them. Now, Herman, how often have we seen the best and the brightest of God's people taken away from them? In God's providence, there are so many great heroes of the faith who died so young. Folks like David Brainerd and J. Gresham Machen who uh, seemed to be like they were going to be great stalwarts of the faith. They were going to change the world for Christ. And even in their youth, they were doing so. And then their young lives were snuffed out. And the church was left wondering, God, why would you take them away from us? When you read the stories of church history, you realize it wasn't just old saints like Polycarp that were martyred for their faith but many young men and women, indeed, even many children, were burnt at the stake or drowned in rivers because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is really sad, of course, is when young folks who appear to be on their way to doing great things for God actually volunteer to be enslaved by Babylon. In the Bible, as we will see later, Babylon is a picture of worldliness. Babylon is a picture of the glory of earthly pleasures. How many young people were on their way to heaven? They were seeking to trust Christ. They were seeking to follow him. And then they got sidetracked into Vanity Fair. Remember Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress? Right? The thrills of this world. All the pleasures that this world can offer. And suddenly these, these young Christians that their moms and dads and grandmoms and granddads and fellow church members were praying big things for them. They wanted big things for them. These are world changes for Christ. And then they were broken hearted as those young people were suddenly allured further and further into worldliness and taken away from the service of Jesus Christ. How many there have been like that? They, we could fill up books and books with the names of young people who've fallen prey. Food, drink, sex, fame, television, sports, shopping, trivial things. Often it is trivial, not necessarily bad things. Sometimes it's just trivial things that grip the hearts of people. And soon Jesus doesn't mean as much to them as he once did. And they're no longer in Babylon by constraint. They're in Babylon by choice. And lost to the church of Christ are their talents and their abilities and all that could have been for the glory of God. Well, number four, the taking of these young men was the outworking of a strategic plan. The taking of these young men was the outworking of a strategic plan. You see, we are told in verse four, 
that these young men were taken away that they might receive a Babylonian education and serve in the king's palace. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan here. He's going to teach Judah's elite the Babylonian worldview and the Babylonian way of life. And this is strategic because there's soon going to be more waves of exiles being brought into Babylon. There's going to be a second wave of exiles, a third wave of exiles. And just last year, we dug up a, uh, a set of tablets where we now know that in between the waves of forced exile... Nebuchadnezzar was sending messengers to Jerusalem saying, come freely to Babylon. Come be a part of our economy. Come be a part of our workforce. We can offer you a better way of life. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to bring the Judahites into Babylon. So think about the impact on the Israelites when they came to Babylon and they saw their own elite. They saw their own celebrities. They saw their own leaders speaking Chaldean right? Fluent in Babylonian literature, living the Babylonian way. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was not a dummy. Nebuchadnezzar was a shrewd leader, and his plan was a scheme of indoctrination. He knew that if he could get the top people, if he could get the intellectuals and the most powerful and the most famous to be brought to to turn from their Israelite heritage and to embrace the Babylonian way, then the masses that would come after them would certainly follow their lead. And of course, this is exactly the ploy that we see repeated again and again in the great ungodly world powers of history. And here in our own nation, we see it all around us. It is no accident that the intellectual elites in our universities are almost unanimous in their rejection of God and His truth. It is no accident that the most famous actors and actresses and the writers in Hollywood seem to be banded together in pushing our society into greater wickedness, further immorality, deeper moral confusion... We could point to clear examples, examples promoting homosexuality and and things like Game of Thrones for adults and even in Frozen for kids. We could point to uh, the Ad Council. Our tax money goes to the government and the government produces these Ad Council ads and the one I saw the other day was clear in promoting homosexuality as something that should be accepted. My money paid for that ad. Your money paid for that ad. The same dark spirit that was at work in Daniel's day. A power stronger than that of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a puppet in the hands of this stronger power. That power is still at work today and he is using his same old crafty tricks. And indoctrination is one of them. And so we must be a sober-minded people. We must be a discerning people. Sometimes indoctrination is overt. Sometimes indoctrination is subtle. And so when we read books and watch television shows or see a movie, we must be quick to think through it. We must be quick to have discussions with other believers about the message of that book, the message of that show, the message of that movie, to make sure we recognize what is good, what can I keep, and what is garbage, and what must I throw out. Friends, love the Lord your God with all your heart, but also love the Lord your God with all your mind. And that means be on guard to the messages being thrown at you 
by our culture today. Number five, number five, the taking of these young men was an expression of strong leadership. It was an expression of strong leadership. What do I mean by that? Well, I already mentioned that King Nebuchadnezzar was a shrewd leader. Nebuchadnezzar did not become the most powerful man in the world in his day by accident. He knew how to lead. And this is reflected in that he didn't just capture the elite of Jerusalem and then send them off as slaves to work in a mine somewhere. Rather, he purposefully chose the best educated and the most healthy and capable men of Judah. And he chose to bring them to his own capital to give them a free education in the Babylonian way of life and to prepare them to serve him and the government of his empire. Now, there's a lot in Nebuchadnezzar to be rejected. He was a man of cruelty. He was a man of idolatry. He was a man of pride. But we do see Nebuchadnezzar intentionally surrounding himself with capable men. And so if there is anything positive we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar, I think it might be this. It's the principle taught in Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Nebuchadnezzar sought the best and most capable to surround himself with. The Bible says you should seek to surround yourself with the wisest of people. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. So let me just ask you this morning. Who are you intentionally seeking to walk with? Think about your closest friends. Think about those whose opinions you listen to most. Are they wise people? Are they godly people? Are you more mature and are you more sober-minded and are you more Christ-like because of the influence of the people whom you hang around most? Mount Hermon, we should be friendly with all people, but we should be intentional about surrounding ourselves with people who will spur us on in honoring God and growing in grace. We need to know how to recognize when somebody is a good influence on us and when somebody is not a good influence on us. And there are certain relationships where we need to keep that friendship as a distant friendship. And there are some relationships where people are wise and mature and godly and we need to say, I want to spend every minute I can around you. I just want to soak up the grace that I see in you. Do you want to be wise, church? Walk with the wise. If you make yourself a companion of fools, you will suffer harm. And sixth and finally, we're done. The taking of these young men was a kindness of God's providence. It was a kindness of God's providence. You say, Justin, how can you said that? You've already told us they were ripped from their homes. They were ripped from the life they knew. They were ripped from their own nation. They were made eunuchs. They are being indoctrinated. They were paraded through the streets of Babylon. How can this be kindness? Well, it's actually worse than that. When you consider the strong faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were young men who knew their God, loved their God, trusted their God, while Jerusalem was full of people who were living in wickedness, but they were taken. And they suffered. And the ungodly were left in Jerusalem to keep living their lives in peace. 
So how is this a kindness of God's providence? Well, friends, we have the whole book. And we know that in the end, what God did with these four young men not only served their good, but also has been used by God over the centuries to bring millions more to know more of his goodness and his faithfulness. How many children in Sunday school classes have come to have courage and to trust God because of the story of Daniel in the lion's den? How many of us in this room have higher thoughts of God today because when we were little ones, somebody told us the story of the three boys in the fiery furnace. God was up to something much bigger than Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Yes, they had to walk through suffering. They had to walk through trials. But in the end, for their eternal good, for the glory of God and even for the good of God's people, he was doing something awesome. Romans 8.28 has proven true that all that God was doing in Daniel's day served the welfare of him and his friends and the welfare of many to come. Behind a frowning providence, God hid a smiling face. God knew what he was doing. And whatever storm clouds might be in your life right now, whatever twists of God's providence have you confused and perplexed or hurting, take heart and trust Daniel's God. Trust the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. And he is working even in what you might be going through right now to do you good as you rest in his son.